Welcome to Estradial Illusions. We have another uh, legal uh, episode, a breaking news type episode about a very important case that uh, you may have been following in the news. We have uh, Carl Charles from Lambda Legal on to talk about what happened with the case of Whitman Walker Clinic versus uh, the HHS, which uh, is dealing with uh, a ruling by the Trump administration to uh, an anti-trans healthcare role. Well, Let's have Carl. Uh, <laughs> everything. Uh, Carl, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, this case? Sure. Thanks, Ian. Uh, and thanks to uh, all the listeners tuning in. And uh, uh, a special thank you, uh, Ian, to you for this uh, a great podcast and for having myself and, and Lambda Legal on to chat about this um, important um, case and uh, ongoing uh, situation. Um, I will just say, you know, um, I'm a staff attorney at Lambda Legal. Um, my pronouns are he, him, his. Um, you know, I'm one of several uh, trans attorneys at Lambda Legal, and uh, I'm really proud and honored to be uh, working on this case, which is fighting back against the, the Trump administration in yet another venue, uh, this time in the realm of, of healthcare access uh, and, and anti-discrimination uh, provisions at the federal level. Um, so that's a little bit about me. And uh, unless you had a question, I can just jump right into the um, a little bit of background about the case. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, a lot of questions I have will, will be because a lot of people are probably uh, confused as to how this is moving forward, given uh, June's absolutely monumental Supreme Court uh, ruling for uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, but um, I guess this 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 uh, HHS rule is being viewed particularly as anti-trans, which I for me is 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 puzzling given that both the the Bostock ruling was actually three separate cases that were lumped into one, and I think it's pretty important and and momentous that the Supreme Court looked at. Uh, those three cases, two that were more related to uh, gay discrimination and one for trans discrimination, and decided that they were all similar enough. I know that there are people, this is really, in other words, a, a carve out to discriminate, particularly against transgender people. Am I correct on that? Yeah, it really does, uh, like many efforts from this administration, take particular uh, aim at at trans people and our access to, to healthcare broadly. Um, and frankly, our access to, uh, you know, anti-discrimination protections and the provision of healthcare that are generally available to pretty much everyone else. Um, so I want to, I want to give listeners just a very brief background. You know, folks may know that the Obama administration in 2016 promulgated this rule, which I will refer to as section 1557 throughout our conversation today. And that rule um, sought to essentially outline for the public, for healthcare providers, for everybody um, touched by the federal government's um, uh, funding of healthcare services, which is pretty much every hospital or, or, or healthcare provider in the country. The rule sought to outline the non-discrimination um, provisions of the Affordable Care Act, right? So the Affordable Care Act broadly says you can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And Section 1557 really um, provided a specific zeroing in on, on that notion on the anti-discrimination um, 
provisions and this rule that was released in, in 2016 said, oh, and by the way, discrimination on the basis of sex includes specifically gender identity, transgender status, and sex stereotypes, right? And the administration did that because in the lead up to 2016, they asked the public, you know, what what kinds of, of experiences of discrimination are people facing in healthcare? Please give us comments. We're about to make this rule. We want to know. And they received an overwhelming majority of comments from trans people about the experiences that many of us have had in trying to access any kind of healthcare, let alone uh, gender affirming healthcare. Um, so they published this rule in response to the public's really um, vocal response uh, or comments, I should say. And um, and the rule went into effect in in 2016. And not not only did it have explicit protections um, based on the basis of gender identity, right, and really explicitly said that sex discrimination includes gender identity, but it also said, look, you cannot have any more categorical exclusions for transition-related or gender-affirming care, which we all know, or, or I would say many people, unfortunately, many trans folks and, and people uh, who love and care about us know that uh, categorical exclu exclusions in health insurance programs were some of the biggest barriers uh, for us accessing care. Um, the rule also had a bunch of other great uh, non-discrimination protections um, for, for example, um, uh, language access uh, provisions, right? So, so for folks who are limited English proficiency, um, the rule also stipulated that healthcare providers had to provide them notices and, where appropriate, provide translation services to people in order to access uh, healthcare, which was a, a, an absolute game changer uh, for many people who experience barriers to healthcare on the basis of their limited English proficiency. And we know there are many trans folks who are immigrants whose, whose first language is not English. And so this, you know, combined with the anti-discrimination protections on the basis of gender identity, um, really ensured that many of the most vulnerable in our community could access care in ways that they had not been able to. So fast forward a little bit, um, Fast forward through uh, an election and then uh, into, you know, three years into uh, the, the Trump administration. And in May of 2019, the Department of Health and Human Services, which is the, you know, federal agency that promulgated Section 1557 and is in charge of the administration of federal funds for, uh, you know, health, uh, health providers, hospitals, almost all healthcare services in the in the country. In May of 2019, they announced a notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, you know, a little bit of legalese, we call that an NPRM. Um, they are required by law to announce to the public that they are working on a, a rule change or a, a regulation change. So they did that and they gave us the broad contours of that and they told us it was gonna be about section 1557. And so there was a huge campaign, which some of your listeners may have been may have submitted comments um, in this campaign, and it was a it was called Protect Trans Health, and it was um, you know it was largely uh, spearheaded by the National Center for Trans Equality and and Transgender Law Center and a number of other groups, advocacy groups, uh, and Lambda Legal certainly um, you know uplifted that effort as well. 
and and ask the public, in particular trans people, people who are healthcare providers who work with trans people, um, and, and pretty much anybody who cares about fairness and equality and healthcare access, to submit a comment telling HHS this was a bad idea, right? That their proposed changes, which were to remove the definition of, of uh, the inclusive definition of on the basis of sex, they were going to remove the gender identity part of that, they were going to move, remove um, uh, the termination of pregnancy part of that. Um, they were going to remove uh, the categorical exclusions, uh, the, the ban on categorical exclusions. They were basically going to undo the rule completely. So, um, you know, all of, all of us in the LGBTQ advocacy community asked the public and every organization who had a stake in this to submit comments. There was a, a historical uh, turnout on that front, uh, over 120,000 comments from individuals, from healthcare entities, um, from doctors, nurses, all kinds of people across the country submitted comments um, to the department. Uh, unfortunately, as has often been the case under this administration, uh, that amounted to approximately nothing. And the Department of Health and Human Services moved forward uh, with their efforts to uh, to change this rule. And uh, on June 12th, uh, as you noted earlier, uh, three days before the Bostock decision, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services said, hey, P.S., we're going to go ahead and publish our rule on June 19th. Here's what it looks like. And it was just as we all feared. Um, now, none of us knew uh, on June 12th that three days later Bostock was coming out. But when it did, it gave us some cautionary hope that the department, as it had acknowledged itself, right? The, the department acknowledged in, in their June 12th notice um, that the Bostock decision could have a huge impact on this rule. And yet, as you noted, five days later on June 19th, Juneteenth, uh, a historic day for other reasons, and certainly we were all still sort of uh, feeling the ripple effect of the positive news from Bostock, um, the HHS went ahead and, and published this rule um, and, and finalized it. Um, so we filed suit three days later um, on, on June 22nd. And I will, I will say for, for your listeners, for your audience, that we had been working on this case um, really for many months leading up to June 22nd. So we didn't just throw it together in three days. We, we and our co-counsel at Steptoe & Johnson, a national law firm, who's committed a lot of resources to this effort. Um, we had been working on this for months leading up to it. Um, so we, we knew it was coming and we wanted to be ready to go as soon as possible. So we were the first case filed, um, uh, in the, you know, in the district court for, for the, for the district of DC. Um, and, and we, we filed our case three days after the rule, uh, was published. Um, let me, let me so, pause there. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so I know that like w part of the beauty of uh, reading the uh, the Bostock decision was you know no no one would mistake Neil Neil Gorsuch for uh, a major LGBTQ activist. You're not going to see Neil Gorsuch at uh, a pride parade, and yet, well maybe someday. But um, for <laughs> for the uh, for for now, I mean, part of the beauty of of the ruling was it it, it didn't really matter what 
you thought of uh, transgender people, the legitimacy of transgender people, because as he states, you know, you can't discriminate against a trans person for being trans without discriminating against them for uh, on the basis of sex. That term on the basis of sex, you know, pops up a lot. And yesterday's uh, preliminary injunction, the BASTA came up a lot and I, I just I I'm really struggling, and I, I bet listeners are too, to kind of wrap that wrap our heads around. You know, how can you carve out gender identity without still falling under the the you know without running into the same uh, roadblocks that that Bostock said uh, were 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 not allowed? The so we got a a, a, a little bit more. We're, we're getting glimpses of of the government's thinking on this front, and 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 as you point out it's really uh, some serious mental gymnastics to try to follow them through this. Es- essentially what the government has argued are, are a couple of things. First of all, they say, and somewhat disingenuously, right? I mean, it's, it's really hard to, as you point out, square the very clear edicts of the Bostock decision with the removal of gender identity from the definition of, of sex discrimination within this rule. Um, but the way that they do that first is by saying, look, uh, we we are not saying affirmatively that people should discriminate, that healthcare providers should discriminate on the basis of sex, but we are saying that that inclusion of gender identity um, was uh, too narrow, and the issue is not sufficiently studied, um, and and there are situations where quote unquote biological sex should govern a particular. A, a healthcare provider situation, right? But I mean, really, we we know that these all s- sort of fail, um, and, and they're 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 really not doing a great job of of covering for themselves on this um, on this front, right? So, um, what the government argued yesterday in our hearing on our motion for preliminary injunction, which we filed on July 9th, um, which asks the court very importantly to stop this rule from going into effect as it is scheduled to on August 18th, right? That's why we had that hearing yesterday was to give the court an opportunity to prevent this rule from going into effect. Um, at the hearing yesterday, the, the, the government said, look, you know, we didn't remove the provisions of the ACA or 1557 necessarily that stop discrimination on the basis of sex, we just remove the definition of, uh, we just remove gender identity from the phrase. So the, the, what was confusing and what the judge asked the government was, well, wait a second. So you, you didn't, you, you remove the definition, but you're, you're, you know, but you're saying Bostock doesn't apply, even though Bostock explicitly says discrimination on the basis of sex includes transgender status. And, and, and the government just sort of repeated itself and said, look, we're, our rule is not inconsistent with Bostock, right? And in the briefing, the government also pointed out that nowhere in the Bostock decision uh, did, did Justice Gorsuch use the phrase gender identity. But we all know the reality is that he didn't have to, right? He said transgender status um, you know, he insists on using the word homosexual, but we read that really broadly, you know, to mean right. uh, LGBTQ people generally. Um, so the the government really is is sort of playing playing fast and loose with saying that their rule isn't 
doesn't go against anything that was in Bostock, right? Because to them, I think what they're arguing is, you know, we didn't say that transgender status wasn't included. We just took out the phrase gender identity, right? And so what we argue is that's basically providing cover for all of these entities to discriminate on that basis and then to allege uh, on the flip side that they're not discriminating against on the basis of someone's quote biological sex. So we we can see what's happening, right? And 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 the the yeah. the, the veil, right, is not it's very thin here. So um, it was it was unfortunately uh, another eye-opening experience listening to that hearing yesterday. Well, it was it, it's very frustrating to hear the phrase like re- religious liberty or the religious freedoms. They're obviously uh, trying to look out for uh, some some Catholic hospitals. I mean, I, I have personal experience getting shitty treatment in uh, Catholic-run hospitals, even in a place like Long Beach, California. The closest hospital to me is a Catholic hospital. Um, I, I've had to go there for emergency care before. They've provided it. It's not a pleasant experience, but I'm thinking about all of the uh, people who are living in, in uh, rural rural areas. I mean, something that you know is important to remind people, uh, LGBTQ people... Uh, are, are not just limited to uh, big rural, I mean, uh, big cities in blue states. They're er- we're everywhere. And uh, one in six hospitals, I, I think that's uh, around the number, are uh, religiously affiliated. And I guess what, I, what, what, what confuses me a bit about what they're trying to do here, like I, I've had a fair amount of uh, surgeries and medical care related to my transition. Um, I, I, I didn't think that I was going to go to a religious hospital and that they were going going to do that but it, it, it's concerning and alarming that uh, ho- hospitals are, are, are playing around with this kind of stuff because it's dangerous absolutely and and Ian unfortunately it's actually even worse than you said it's actually the statistic is one in six hospital beds in oh, the country wow. belongs to a Catholic affiliated or a, a, a Catholic affiliated or religiously affiliated um, hospital organization. So it's even more stark um, and, and, and really raises the, the question about why the federal government decided it was necessary to incorporate inappropriately, right? And we argue um, against the, the contraventions of law, um, the, the religious... Um, sort of the religious freedom protections, which are embedded in, in, in title nine, you know, why they wanted to apply that to all hospitals, right. Um, rather than, uh, rather than just those with educational programs or, um, or, or those that specifically fall under the purview of, of title nine. I mean, it's, it's really clear that the department of health and human services is sort of bending over backwards, um, to, provide cover for, I won't say license to discriminate, but they're certainly inviting it with these changes, right? And the, the, the real um, familiar, familiar dog whistle of accommodation of, of, of strongly held religious beliefs, right? We, we all know what that stands for. And that's, that, that is a, a pharmacist's ability to deny someone hormones or um, right. You know, someone who, like our like our client in a different matter, um, Johnny Conforti, went to his neighborhood hospital in Patterson, New Jersey, St. Joe's, 
and had a surgeon who had agreed to provide him with the appropriate transition-related care, gender-affirming care, who had, you know, um, uh, you know what they call um, uh, privileges, right? Privileges at that hospital so that he could perform right. the surgery yeah. there. And when the, the when the hospital found out, they said, "Nope, sorry, we don't we don't allow that here." And so just as you noted, and as I'm sure many of your listeners are now considering, many of us don't know when we go into a hospital that it is religiously affiliated. And now I, you know, so, so I'm, I'm certainly getting more, uh, I'm becoming more aware of this myself as I'm thinking about all the hospitals nearby and what they're named, right? right. Some of these saints and holy whatevers and, and, and whatnot. But um, even still, right, that doesn't even necessarily always mean that it's run by a, a religious uh, conglomerate or run by the bishops or, or whatever. Um, and so I think this is giving many of us pause um, uh, who have options for access. And for those of us, as you correctly identify, who are, who are in a community where there is one hospital and it is a, you know, Francis uh, uh, Alliance kind of uh, situation, we may not have an option about where to go. Um, and so I think this really raises a lot of red flags on that front as well. Well, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about how uh, even last month when they had the Supreme Court ruling saying that states could limit church gatherings on the basis of um, to prevent the spread of that thing called uh, coronavirus. And uh, I even thinking back to something like uh, Reynolds versus the United States, which which established that there are limitations to, to freedom of religion. And I mean, I, I don't know how 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 relevant it is that the idea that uh as i point out to people you know the bible doesn't talk about transgender people so i i don't really know what their standing even is to uh uh carve out transgender uh exceptions to their rule without really establishing how that uh, is against their religion but i guess that's kind of beside the point i know we're uh, short on time, but I, I just wanted to ask sort of where we go from here, because a lot of the hearing yesterday seemed to be centered around the idea of um, whether some of your uh, plaintiffs would be the right word, I think, mm -hmm. um, yep. whether whether, the, whether they had standing to even uh, hear this case, which uh, is, is also kind of alarming because you don't, you, you know, you don't want to have somebody go... Uh, you you really would hate for somebody to be in one of these emergency type situations and then, you know, for, for people to say, oh, we have to wait until that person gets discriminated against before we should do anything. I mean, the, it's all pretty clear right now. Right. No, that's a that's a great point and, um, and an important uh, one to discuss from the hearing yesterday. The judge really uh, came out um, uh, very forcefully with a lot of questions for us on the issue of standing. And, you know, just for the listeners, you have to... Um, you know, you, you, in order to bring a case in any court, but particularly in federal court, you have to meet certain benchmarks um, to get in the courthouse door, right? And so, you know, in our complaint, which is accessible on our, our website, lambdalegal.org, um, you know, you can see that we, we spent a, a lot of time in the complaint is uh, many pages, I think over 80. Um, uh, we, we spent um, a great deal of time um, and, and ink talking about the harms that would befall our, our plaintiffs, our clients. And our clients range from, uh, sort of run the gamut, right, from individual members, uh, individual transgender people who will be affected by this rule, 
individual uh, uh, providers. So that's that's doctors um, and other healthcare providers, and then actual organizations, right? And so we argued in our in our complaint about. Um, about the harms that will befall those three categories and why uh, categories of people or, or entities uh, and why we have the right to be in court about it. Um, and then, you know, um, what the judge spent a fair amount of time discussing yesterday uh, was also this notion of irreparable harm, right, which is a, a burden that we have to show um, the court in order for the court to grant our motion to stop the rule, right, for a preliminary injunction. So we have to show that if the judge does not grant our motion for preliminary injunction, right, if he does not stop this rule, that our clients will experience uh, irreparable harm. And so if you listen to the audio or read the transcripts, you'll hear my colleague Omar Gonzalez-Pagan talk really uh, extensively about the harms that all of us know will befall um, transgender people, their medical providers, and these organizations, right? And so I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll just briefly say, I think all of us intimately know on some level the, the irreparable harm that will happen to many of us yeah. if suddenly we have no protection from discrimination in the provision of healthcare access. Um, you know, similarly, healthcare providers who provide that those services, um, albeit on a limited basis at LGBTQ specific um, clinics across the country, will be so overburdened, right, by an influx of people who were previously accessing care um, at other hospitals, in other places uh, where they were safe to do so, and now are foreclosed from that, you know, that the the degree to which that will tax those specialty providers will just be um, really incredible, almost to the point where they're not even able to provide the services um, that the community so relies on them to do. Um, and then finally, the organizations, right, places like the trans or, or, or uh, uh, networks like the Translatina Coalition and Ariana Center in Florida and Puerto Rico, um, those organizations are tiny, right? As so many of the right. groups, so many of the trans advocacy groups across the country are very small and operate on a shoestring budget and do critical, critical work for some of the most uh, marginalized in our community, right? I'm, I'm thinking of the folks that I spoke about at the beginning of the segment, um, you know, uh, trans folks who are immigrants, who do not speak English as their first language, um, and who often need emergency housing and healthcare services, Translatina Coalition, Coalition and Ariana Center provide those services. And if, if, if discrimination is running rampant across um, healthcare providers and, and possibly uh, via insurance, which is inclusive um, you know, of, of, of some state-funded you know, um, insurance programs, those organizations are going to be taxed to the limit and taxed into um, disintegration potentially, right? So Omar did a great job, I think, of really outlining those problems to the court. But you know, if you if you listen back to the argument, or for those who did listen to it, um, it was the judge was came came with some tough questions for us and really wanted us to explain to him why why that was going to be irreparable harm. Um, and, and, you know, I think we made, I think we made a good showing, but, but, uh, we'll, I guess we'll see, 
when the judge issues his ruling, um, how much water our arguments uh, really held. So, well, uh, I know I know we're uh, short on time, and you're very busy. Uh, we'll be following this case with uh, great interest, and we'd uh, love to have you back, Carl, to to talk about it when the judge issues uh, the next ruling. Uh, Carl, I just. I generally don't like to speak on behalf of the LGBTQ community, but I think it's important, and I think my listeners would agree, that uh, the work that Lambda does is uh, vitally important. And uh, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you. This is uh, it, it cannot be overstated the uh, importance of uh, these these fights that you guys are uh, carrying out on behalf of all of us. So, so thank you sincerely. Well, thanks, Ian, and and I I, I have to send that gratitude back to you. Um, for all the work that you do in, in you know, sharing uh, Lambda Legal's work, but not only that, you know, sort of uh, providing a platform for people to have access to news and information. Um, you know, we can't, we can't do what we do without you and what you do. So thank you very much for the opportunity. And I'd love to come back and hopefully be a little bit less verbose, but, uh, but, but certainly, right. certainly provide you all with an update, uh, as this case moves along. And I hope, I hope the next time I'm back, I'll be able to share that the rule has been, um, has been stopped, uh, while our litigation moves forward. Um, because we know that trans people's lives really hang in the balance. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, we like to, ha this is a generally speaking, a pretty lighthearted show, but uh, this is serious stuff and we need to cover that. And uh, you explained things so perfectly. So thank you so much again. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be following this with great interest and we'll uh, see you next time.